are very pleased to have as our guest today for our podcast, Dr. Susan David. She is a psychologist on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School, co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, and CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology. Susan David has worked with the senior leadership of hundreds of organizations, including the United Nations, Ernst & Young, and the World Economic Forum. Her work has been featured in numerous publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Time, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal. Susan, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. So let's begin by um, having you give us your definition of this thing that you've written about called emotional agility. What exactly is that, and why is it so essential? Well, let me start with the why it's so essential. In organizations and, of course, every day in all of us, we have thousands upon thousands of thoughts, emotions, experiences, and inner stories. And how we deal with these drives everything we do. It drives our relationships. It drives what jobs or projects we put our hands up for. It drives how we lead and how we interact with the world around us. So in writing Emotional Agility, I was effectively concerned with one central question, and that is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, emotions, and stories that enables us to thrive in the world, to thrive externally? So what is emotional agility? Emotional agility is fundamentally the ability to be with and be healthy with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories even ones that might be troubling or concerning or anxiety-provoking, and yet still take action that is in accordance with how we want to live and lead in the world. So with all of this research and talk about learned optimism and the work of Martin Seligman and the positive uh, psychology movement, how do you fit these two together? What's the, what's the meshing of them? Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of my background has been in the positive psychology area or with an interest in positive psychology. And in fact, many years ago, I wrote an 80 chapter or edited an 80 chapter textbook called the Oxford Handbook of Happiness, which really explores, you know, what does it take for us as human beings to be happy? The way that I would put these together is that really a lot of the cultural messaging about happiness is the idea that we should focus on happiness, that happiness should be an end goal and that happiness is something that we should all strive for. And, you know, just to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness, <laughs> but I'm a happy person. I actually am, you know, I'm a really happy person and I, and I enjoy my life. But what's really fascinating with the research is it shows that people who have an expectation around happiness tend to, over time, become less happy. And there are a number of reasons for this. One of the first reasons is that when we have a goal around happiness, what the psychological research shows is that we often start engaging in an internal struggle with ourselves. So in psychology, we talk about type one thinking and type two thinking. 
uh, type one thinking is when you have a worry. You know, I'm worried about whether the team is going to deal with this project effectively or I'm worried about my presentation. And those worries are actually very healthy. It's, it's our mind doing the job that our mind was meant to do, which is to judge and evaluate and to be concerned about our safety in the world. And those are healthy and normal experiences that have often become pathologized by society. You know, we shouldn't worry. We should be happy all the time. And what starts to happen very often is we start to layer in what I call in emotional agility type two worries. I'm worried about the fact that I'm worried so much. I shouldn't be worried. Um, I'm sad about the fact that I'm unhappy. And so what we often start to do, and I've seen leaders do this a lot of the time, is people will start to push aside uh, concerns that are actually relevant and warranted. So a leader might say, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job, and they'll push that aside. Or I know that the team's upset or anxious about something, but I just don't want to go there because I want to focus on the project. Now, what's really interesting is we know that when people try to push aside difficult or challenging thoughts and emotions, we have what we call in psychology an amplification effect, where the very thing we try not to think about is what we think about. And, (laughs) of course, anyone who's been on diet and tries to lose weight (laughs) knows that the very time you try not to think about chocolate cake, that's what you dream about. So really just to circle back to the answer to your question is one of the core ways we can be emotionally agile is to not engage with ourselves about whether we should or shouldn't have a particular thought, emotion, experience. Um, To quite literally give up any struggle inside of ourselves by dropping the rope. Um, And when we are able to enter into a space in ourselves that is more self-compassionate and more accepting, what is fascinating in all human experience is that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. It is at that point that we are able to move forward and forge forward effectively. Um, And often then as a byproduct, we actually become happier. But we don't become happier by trying to be happy. We, We become happier by focusing on what is intrinsically important to us mm. rather than having happiness as a goal. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's very nice. I'd be, I'd be curious, there's been a lot written of late about this quality called mindfulness. Do, do you see these things as being quite, quite similar or do you see a distinction between mindfulness and emotional agility? So in emotional agility, I speak to four key processes of emotional agility. Uh, Showing up, stepping out, walking your why, and then moving on, being able to make key changes. Now, mindfulness has a place in the second aspect of emotional agility. So mindfulness, the ability to really notice your thoughts and feelings as thoughts and feelings, is a critical way that we can get some distance between us and our thoughts and our feelings. So, for example, you go into a presentation and instead of saying, I am stressed, in which you are 100% identifying with your stress, 
you might, from a mindfulness perspective, notice your stress. But really, emotional agility is much more than mindfulness. It's also the ability to make habit changes that are fundamentally consistent with our values and our goals. And Susan, I, I love the uh, quote that you give by Viktor Frankl about stimulus and response. And do you, you want to share that with us? And I, I think it really fits here a little bit. So a core aspect of emotional agility, or really the, the basis of emotional agility, is very beautifully captured in the quotation by Viktor Frankl. Um, so Viktor Frankl, out of his experiences of the Nazi death camps, basically wrote this beautiful phrase, which is a marker of the ability to be emotionally agile. What he said is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And it is in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. Now, when people are being emotionally inagile, when they're being driven by their thoughts, their emotions, their stories, their hooks, you know, am I good enough? Um, is this okay? I sound like a fraud, so I'm just going to shut down in the meeting. There's no point in me contributing. These are all signs of someone who's hooked or emotionally inagile. And in Viktor Frankl's terms, this individual doesn't have a space between stimulus and response. Instead, there's a conflation between stimulus and response. Yeah, so, they're, they're um, Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> they, they are. They are <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? You know, I'm feeling something. I'm thinking something. Therefore, I'm going to act on it. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly right. Um, and part of the process of emotional agility is being able to show up to those feelings and thoughts and emotions but to also create a distance that is healthy and to then make choices that are values aligned. You know, I'm in this meeting and I'm feeling undermined, but I can still choose to contribute. I am really upset by something that my boss said to me, and I am able to recognize that my values are still to contribute so how can I contribute effectively in this context? So what we're doing here is instead of just being driven by, this is what I'm feeling and this is what I'm thinking, we are able to um, bring the best of ourselves forward. Thank you. So Susan, what have you learned about the best ways in which people develop this quality? I'm assuming you believe it can be acquired and, and uh, and strengthened. How do you do that? So absolutely. So firstly, I should say that I absolutely believe, and in fact, there's a body of research that suggests that we can develop these qualities. Um, I also think that these qualities are qualities for now, qualities that are needed in organizations. Because one of the great paradoxes in organizational life at the moment is that every organization is calling leaders and its employees to be agile. You know, we need to be agile and adaptive in the workplace because the organization itself needs to be agile and adaptive. And yet what's really interesting is 
that the same complexity that drives the need to be agile, that is leading organizations to say, be agile, be collaborative, be innovative, be inclusive, um, be relational. These same qualities, when people are experiencing the stress of complexity, they are much more likely to do the opposite. Instead of being collaborative, they are more likely to shut down and become singularly focused on what they are trying to achieve. Um, when people are feeling stressed, they are less likely to be relational than much more likely to be transactional, to really focus on, I've got 300 emails to write today, and therefore I just don't have the time to ask my colleague how his son who is dying of cancer is doing. So what's really interesting is that the context of complexity demands particular things of leaders and employees, and yet that same context is what undermines these abilities in leaders and employees. So in terms of the development of emotional agility, what I was really hoping for, and the feedback is that I think I've achieved it at some level in the book, is to really have something that is both robust and is practical and is attainable. Um, so some core ideas are the qualities of firstly showing up to emotion, the idea of uh, not struggling with emotion. So for example, being able to, instead of just saying, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, to recognize that there's a difference between being stressed versus angry, stressed versus disappointed, stressed versus sad, stressed versus, because I thought that I would have made a bigger contribution in my career. When we label more accurately our emotions, especially our difficult experiences, in a more nuanced way. So instead of, as a leader, being um, stressed, that person is able to be more differentiated that that in turn enables the person to be able to make choices that are more intentional and more connected with what he or she is really feeling. Are there any final things that you'd like to, to tell our, our listeners and readers uh, about emotional agility that would be helpful to them? One of the things that I explore in emotional agility is how values can be very freeing. In organizations, values often have this terrible connotation of being cheesy notes stuck on walls in organizations that are basically very abstract. But really what I'm exploring in emotional agility is how values are not these abstract ideas, but they are qualities of action that we can truly bring to the ground in our decisions. And one of the most fascinating parts of the book that I loved writing was what, what I talk about as the difference between have two goals and want two goals. A have two goal is when you set a goal at work or at home, for example, related to your health behavior, you might say, I have to lose weight. Why? Because everyone is at me about it. So a have to goal is often driven by a sense of obligation or shame or extrinsic pressure. One can also have what we call want-to goals. A want-to goal is a goal that is deeply connected with what you value. 
So, for example, a want to goal in relation to health and weight loss might be I want to lose weight because I truly want to be with my children as they grow up. Now, what's fascinating is how these different types of goals, having a have-to goal versus a want-to goal, even though the end point is the same, how they drive different types of behavior. So, for example, if you have a weight loss goal that is a have-to goal, and you go to a refrigerator and you open the refrigerator and you are trying to lose weight and there is a piece of chocolate cake in that refrigerator, that is all you will want. When you have a have-to goal, it actually triggers your mind to rebel, to want the very thing (laughs) that you cannot have and it makes you resentful. (laughs) When you have a want-to goal that's intrinsically values-oriented, You open the refrigerator and it literally alters the physics of your willpower and your temptation and what it is that you see in the refrigerator. So you open the refrigerator and you are more likely to see the chocolate cake, but everything else in the refrigerator as well. And what the research shows is that when we have want-to goals, we are more likely to attain and make real changes to the kinds of habits that we want to alter. Now take that and apply this idea in organizations. Very often as leaders and and as employees, we trap ourselves into even subtleties of language around have to. I have to go to this meeting now. I have to finish the project. I have to, have to, have to. Very often those pages that we have created for ourselves out of have-to goals actually at some level have an intrinsic want-to component. I want to go to the meeting because I really want this project to be effective for the customer. Or I want to have this conversation with the individual because how my team operates is crucially important. So one of the things that I think is critical from an emotional agility perspective is not a fake it, you know, pretend to want something that you don't really. If you're pretending too much, you might want to find another job or another career. But this idea of trying to surface intrinsic desires that have maybe over time become sources of resentment for you but that are truly connected with something that is important can be very, very freeing and can help people to unlock more effective behaviors over time. Well, Susan, I used that this morning as I was drinking my kale shake uh, for breakfast, and I said, I want to do this. I want to live longer. (laughs) But it still tasted bad, but I felt better about it. So it seemed oh, seemed to work, but it so still good. tasted bad. <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, a fascinating conversation, and we'll uh, look forward to future insights into this great topic of emotional agility. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for speaking today. Thank you. you bet.